When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Aaron. And this is Chris. Uh, we've come to that point, haven't we? Mm-hmm. A little bit sad, but also a little bit of relief because we have been dissecting this book for a very very long time. And you know, we've said this about several chapters, and I think this one's going to be super short. Famous last last words. (laughs) We end up teasing out a chapter of him riding in a car from point A to point B for two hours. Uh, Who knows how long this will be. Yeah, we start dissecting miles per gallon and shit like that, and all of a sudden it's four hours later. God bless. Uh, Yes, yeah, so... Uh, there, there are some bits to tease out of this. When I initially thought about this chapter, my first thought was, oh, so he gets out of his rig, blows past Og, goes and sits next to the girl of his dreams. They hold hands. She smooches his cheeky cheek. And that's the end of the book. Yeah. All right. And that's the end of the show, guys. Thanks. And we'll catch you in the next chapter. No. <laughs> Uh, so no, but seriously though, but I, I think that there are some subtle things in here that, that we can touch on, but uh, I imagine we should just kind of do a, a rundown and work it from the top. So take us there, man. Wait, we're going to start this chapter from the beginning. How crazy. Like you, like you do. Yeah. Go for it. So where, where do we, where do we come off? He's just, he's just finished capturing the egg and he's, he's now coming into the real world. Yeah. So he walks out of the immersion bay kind of like he's being born into reality. No. Gross. He's just walking out of the immersion bay. And then there's... Like, a- he gets out of his chair. <laughs> <laughs> Sound effects. And then Og's just standing there. Creepy. Gives him this... Yeah, a little bit creepy. It gives him this big crushing bear hug. Probably lifts him off the floor, too. Because Og's like this big burly guy. He tells him about all the GSS execs just waiting out there, all the lawyers and shit. Here's an interesting thing. This is this is a a quick aside, but I I do have a, a VR rig in my office, and one of the Ooh. things that makes it difficult to use it is that you're completely blind to your environment. This isn't like putting on a pair of glasses where you have a peripheral vision or you can see through per se. Um, when you're in a game or something, you're in the game. And this idea of having somebody in the room with you while you're playing and not being able to see them or where they are or what they might be doing, that's kind of um that that is a, a kind of a, 
a big barrier to using it frequently other than by yourself, very much by yourself, because you need a lot of space to spread out and you don't want anyone watching you, which is really kind of like describing porn, but uh, for video games, really. I like where you're headed with that. Keep going. Yeah, exactly. But he's standing outside waiting for him, right? I mean, he's not standing in the bay with him, watching God, no. over him. Like That would just, like, what, like eating popcorn, just watching him? No, that's a uh, lot. I love watching these kids play in their, in their contraptions, watching them wiggle around while they're fighting. It's, it rubs the lotion gross. on its skin. It rubs its lotion on its skin. Uh, it, yeah, okay. So he's waiting outside. He's waiting for him. Lawyers be abound now that Parzival owns... Well, let's face it, he owns everything. I think he probably owns those lawyers. He does. I guarantee you they're on retainer. Uh, so here's here's the weird thing is that this is kind of a lotto scenario. And we, if you go online and you type in, you know, f- lotto failures or the dangers of winning the lottery, inevitably you're going to find story after story of a person who moved from middle class or poverty is propelled into into money and and as a result power to a certain extent really spending power let's just say and how it ruins their lives it ruins the lives for them uh makes them lonely it sends them into a spiral that's usually you know you know drug sex and, and parties with people you don't know that are just using you for your cash i have to wonder where he, where the next book goes with this. I think that's a discussion for later, but I hear you. Okay, well, agreed. Like, I mean, he, he's popped out, and now he is the wealthiest person in the world, or maybe the fifth wealthiest person in the world, along with everyone else that's in the high five. Collectively, they're the richest, but individually, they're probably, yeah, tied for like fifth, sixth, seventh place. Yeah. Individually, they're probably less wealthy than Og now. Possibly. You know, but I'm curious to see where they go in the next book with this. And if I was to think of that situation, for him to kind of pop out and kind of go where he goes next is a little bit mind blowing. Maybe he reneges on his promise and he's going to be a six or flating punk. There you go. There you go. I don't know. I don't know. Anyhow, moving on, though, we can move beyond that. We'll find that out in the book. The book will pick up, well, I just took my seventh line of blow. (laughs) For lunch, we're going to have heroin. You'll know that 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 rich case scenario went south real fast. But that would be an int- I think that would be an interesting plot point. Yeah. Is that okay? Maybe he handles the the sudden propelling into into power and wealth because this is truly not only just wealth, it's power. But whether or not the other four will handle it, and I have to wonder if maybe one of them doesn't handle it well and kind of becomes the next enemy. It would well, suck if that was the case, but that would be a turn. That would that would suck. I mean, anyway. would, I would still I would still read it. But anyhow, moving on. So of course, just like when he first got to Og's Rivendell, he asked Og, "So, uh, where'd that Artemis chick go?" He directs 
Parzival to the center of his hedge maze. And he says that it's an easy maze. So Parzival walks out, and of course, it's a beautiful day. Sun shining, the birds are chirping. He squints his eyes because it's just so bright. He hasn't seen, you know, outdoor sunlight in a long time. This reminds me of like coming out of a movie theater. Yeah, a little bit. You know, where everything is just so bright that it is surreal. He goes to this, uh, the center of the maze. Uh, the entrance is the facade of a castle, which should be the first hint as to where he's headed. Then he enters the maze. The hedges are 10 feet tall, so he can't look over it. Right, right. Because that would be cheating. Right. And it took him a while, but eventually he says he figures out that it's identical to the Labyrinth of Adventure. Now, hmm, I know you had the, a very s- similar thought to me on this, but what does the Labyrinth of Adventure look like? Yes. And there are a lot of pictures online, and there are some really good ones that kind of lay it out. But as it turns out, when you leave one side of your screen, it doesn't match up. It doesn't it's match up. It's basically a bunch of wormholes. It jumps you around. Yeah, it's yes, it's a bunch it's, it's a bunch of wormholes is a great way to put it because it shuffles you into a, a whole other part of it. I mean, the only thing that is consistent is that if you go left off the screen, you will come in from the right on another part of the maze. But it does not match up. It does not it, can, it doesn't, you know, you could not lay it down flat. It's this weird I guess wormholes is the best way to put it. Almost like a chutes and ladders uh, from one maze to the other. Yeah. And I just don't know what that's going to look like as a hedge maze. Even if you look in the individual castles, there's some patterns there that you could probably adapt to a cool hedge maze, but it's going to take some work from the original concept. There's nothing that I saw that resembles the center of a maze. Like, I couldn't look at it and go, ah, there's an obvious center to this part of the maze. Yeah. No. Actually, the mm-hmm. only part that's an obvious center is the starting point. But, the, the, but that's not the maze. That's not. That's just like an open area. I know. Before you but, go up. Yeah. But it's also, there's like a direct path to the ca- castle entrance. Yeah, into the castle. Yeah, it's like the front yard of the castle. I, it, it's, it, it's just an interesting way. It's like, ah, you'll figure it out. Oh, it was the, it was the, we went to the center of the maze from Adventure, and it's like there is no center. There's no, there's no one part of the maze that looks like you could go to the center of it. Anyhow, I digress, but it, it is kind of goofy that way. What I do like, though, is that once he reaches the center of the maze, there is a fountain with the three dragons that are spurting water into the fountain. Yep, the uh, the duck-shaped dragons, very cool. I kind of want to see those. I want to see these three-dimensional 8-bit dragons, these deformed ducks, which was a nice little callback to the, I guess it was chapter zero, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where he described them as deformed ducks being poked with an arrow or something, rather than being stabbed with the sword. So I like that. That was pretty cool. And then the magical moment, he sees her sitting on a bench. I feel like there needs to be the cue up of some sort of music. There should be. We gotta we gotta pick some goods. You know, I've had the time of my life. Oh, it all to you, right? Something like no. that. 
Okay. I don't know. That's that is the first thing that comes to my mind. Okay. Well, we can try, maybe, to, maybe we try to work that in. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. So the Caesar's sitting there. Evidently, she found the center of the maze too. Yeah, she. Uh, well, she's no dummy. So, like, did she just tell Og, I'm going to the center of the hedge maze? Tell Parzo I'm going to be there? I need to smoke. I'll be back. Yeah. I need to smoke <laughs> a blunt. I, I, will, I will be outside. Now that I'm rich, could you bring me some coke? <laughs> Deliver the lines to the center of the maze, please. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but it was enough to sort of direct him in his... Uh, in, in his moment of of surreal sunlight and and sort of beautiful dayness, and this is this is a pretty decent description because I can imagine you're, you're you're jumping out of this world that is just wholly different than reality, and then walking outside is uh, realer than real, beautiful bright green and blue colors, and and even even earlier in the book it said that what you view in the oasis isn't. So super real like it's very real but you can tell that there are imperfections or repeats of patterns and that places where Halliday had a special interest the details were far more minuscule and fine like seeing ants crawling along a tree for example you knew that you were in the right place because there's just so much more detail given but you know the real world is the real world, and it is the the ultimate bar for reality in any sense, in any game or any simulation. So him kind of coming to this point is is interesting, and you know her, you know coming him coming to her at the center of this maze is also kind of a an interesting and very subtle uh, plot point there, because when we talk about the what the entire book is, the entire book is him searching for keys. And the keys that take you to those gates. And that that's adventure. You're searching for keys in a maze to take you through the gates in the castles. And the whole point of the book is that that there's more to the game than just finding the keys and going through the gates. And here we have this fountain that is what what he what you would be running from let's just say that these these duck shaped dragons for, for every key he grabbed he was always running from IOI IOI was his duck shaped dragon oh snap and now that's tamed now it's now it is no longer a threat it's not breathing fire it's spitting not, water exactly and now he has discovered the thing that is important and that is that is the the heart of the maze, that place that's that's tucked away and nestled within the maze. And that is that that one little that one little, you know, bit the one little bit of light that you end up discovering in the maze and taking back to the beginning. And that's what he's doing. He is he has discovered his own Easter egg. His Easter egg has always been Artemis. A heart shaped this, Easter egg. His heart-shaped Easter yeah, I guess that's one way of putting it. That's kind of sappy, I guess. But yeah, totally, <laughs> Dude, right? They, the the, whole, this, roll the with whole last part of this chapter is all sappy, it's super awkward, sap, sticky. I mean, in a sappy, tree, syrupy kind of way. Not a, we're going to move on. So heart-shaped, she is his heart-shaped Easter egg. And she is 
even even herself, him trying to be himself, he has been looking for a way to sort of uh, unlock her because she has always been defensive and always been always had her armor up. Almost always, I should say. She's been the stronger of the two of them, for sure, throughout the entire thing. None of this would be possible without her. He would have folded out of his love for her. And and because of his written love for her, he risked his life within you know the constraints of the, the writing of the book because of her. Because he had nothing left to lose. She is kind of that final gate, is what I imagine. She's not only his Easter egg, she is his... Ugh. Gate is a horrible word to use. I mean, it's totally fucking appropriate for the book, but just falls apart after the fact. But anyhow, no person is an object to be won. However, when you are seeking the affections of someone, you're trying to do it, you know, not just to manipulate them. You do want them to honestly like you for who you are. And there is some mutual unlocking that has to happen between two people. Before we get much further, let's 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 crawl into the interaction here. So he sees her sitting on the bench, right? And right. she's got her hands in her lap and her hair is spilled over her shoulder. And he says that he finally worked up the courage to speak. And he says, hello. Bravo. Nailed it there, Parzival. Bravo. Hello. But what would what what's what's he supposed to what's where what is the what is the good opening line there, man? Well, like I I'm just like thinking that he's sitting there like trying to figure like well how do I start this interaction with her? What am I gonna say? Like what is this profound thing? Like how do I do it in such a way? And like the best he comes up with is hello. <laughs> I like how you're imagining it. Like he saunters over to her side while she is sitting there not looking at him. Hello. <laughs> Have I seen you here before? And this maze looks familiar. You look familiar. Funny running uh, into you here where Og told me you were going to be. <laughs> Did I mention that I was filthy rich? Uh, yeah, oh, you're right. Yeah, I guess he does pull out the goofy line. At least, at least he's joking with her, right? At least you know he's trying to break the uh, break the ice a bit. Yeah, and I might be a little bit—I'll use the word—contaminated by the reading by Will Wheaton because the way he reads it adds a lot of awkwardness to it, which I don't remember getting the same way when I read the book without mm. his narration. I see. He sounds when he's reading their lines very timid and almost cowering a little bit. Like, you stick your toe in the water and then you immediately pull it back out. Like, you're not sure if that was the right thing to do or say. And That sounds... That's how I would imagine it. I don't see Parzival as being confident in this situation. I wouldn't say I expected confidence out of him. In some ways, like, with all the armor off, yeah, you're exposed, but I feel like he should be a little bit pumped up right now. Like, like he's not even... Like he just won the fucking contest, but so did she. So there, there, there is no dominance here at all. It's not I about mean, a matter no... of dominance or whatever. But like he should be like riding on cloud nine, right? Like feeling pretty good about himself, really confident. He just won the contest, mm-hmm. and yet he's kind of walking on eggshells here. It seems. Well, he doesn't know how she's going to respond, and 
as she's written in the book. She told her response, how to have him find her. Well, and that's fine. But for all we know, she was going to be like, look, this isn't going to work between us. And I'm sorry. Yeah. We, don't, we don't know how this is going to turn out. That's a good out. thing to do how... in the middle of a hedge maze. <laughs> <laughs> the... <laughs> well, you know, if he flips out, at least it's in private, right? It's, you know, I'm going to leave you alone here with the fountain to think about that. But this one section of hedge is growing a lot quicker than the other. <laughs> what? Yeah. Dead body. Fertilizer. Oh. Oh, okay. Got it. No, that's not what I was thinking at all, but okay, yes. Uh, <laughs> you don't know. He doesn't. He, you, would, you don't know. Going Reading through this book, you just know the dog's like, she's that way, son. <laughs> you know, I, it, she's in the maze. It's simple enough. You'll find her. Uh, and then he's hey, going to borrow he's, my he, binoculars. <laughs> I, Bless, um, sick old man. I, I I use them to spy on you kids while you're in your in your suits. Uh, <laughs> no, we in the book you you should be nervous with him. You do not know how she's going to respond. We hope that this is a happy ending. We hope. We hope. We know. We don't know. We really don't. We hope that it, it that it, it it ends well. This is a book written by an American author for a largely American audience. It was going to be a happy ending. And I get you. And it's about a lot of 80s shit. And let's face it, a lot of the 80s shit had happy endings. So, you know, uh, except for, you know, except for Empire Strikes Back. But regardless, still, the point being here is we don't really know how this is going to turn out. We kind of hope that it turns out well. We've got no idea, you know, if she's going to be like, you know, I just, I, 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 I'm only interested in friends. Or, or uh, hey, tell me more about H. <laughs> you never know. So, it, 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 I'm nervous with Parzival. So, when I heard the reading of this, I felt that. I felt the trepidation. That was the nice thing about the reading, I thought. Was while you did, I didn't read it first. Like, I just, I just got the audiobook first because I'm lazy and have a lot of drive time. So when I heard it, I was like, well, that makes sense. And now that's kind of clouded how I've read it. To me, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I could see how if you read it and somebody else wasn't inflecting a tone on top of this text, that maybe it would come across differently, maybe more confident, maybe just more, hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? What's up, girl? Damn, that was good. Did you? That was a great battle. You did a good job. We all did great. We're rich. Remember that part where everybody, including you, died? Awesome. <laughs> awesome. It was, it was a team effort, team effort. I'm sure we all had that experience in our childhood where you approach the person who you really like and you want to talk with them and you're, you know, you feel awkward and embarrassed, but you want to say hello, but you, you know, like, I think everybody's been there. Yeah, that's true. But here's, here's also another angle to that. He knows she is sensitive about how she looks and he knows that she is going to know what she looks like now in person. Now they know that we know that they know that we know. He doesn't know how she's going to respond to that situation. This is different than just approaching anyone. This is somebody who has expressed a confidence flaw, maybe, uh, you know, due to this, this uh, port wine birthmark that has made it difficult for her in life. And if anybody has had any sort of personal 
And if everyone looks in the mirror and goes, you again, at some point, you know, you see your own imperfections a million times bigger than anyone else. So to have something that stands out as much as, as what's described in the book for this person, even if you don't care on the outside, you know, you seeing this person, that person's going to see that. And it's a million times worse and grotesque. And, and it can really kind of fuck with the person's uh, uh, sort of self-confidence. And uh, that's what's cool about the Oasis, because you can be perfect in the Oasis and you can gain that confidence. But we've seen that like we've seen now she's in this place where she is vulnerable because she's meeting him in person and, and she does have this physical vulnerability. And we don't know how she's going to respond, which I think is why the reading that that was given the way the book was read was, in my opinion, spot on. Although I understand why you took it that way when you gave it a first read as well. I I was never worried about her response. Well, I think, I think, well, I knew that it would probably end up okay. That's the direction it's heading. You know, it would be a crappy turn of events for this to go, mm, no. <laughs> Maybe that's what's in, in book two. They break up. Maybe. Who knows? So, uh, so, so continue on. So he sees her. She says hello in his smooth way. But she turns away. She keeps turning away so that she's out of his field of vision, but he can still see her. And it's like, he's she's seen, putting off the moment. She's putting off the moment. He's seen her picture. Like, I don't know what she thinks she's hiding at this point. She doesn't know what he has seen, picture-wise. She doesn't know what she... I mean, you're going to go back I, to the whole, like, maybe they were taking video of her in the bathroom thing? No, 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 no. I don't want to go there. But, but uh, I mean, he told her that, that he saw a picture. I don't remember them discussing what picture he well, saw. Well, he did send them the dossiers, so she would have oh, seen okay. So, Yeah, I suppose. And then there was that shower scene. Tell me you didn't look at that. <laughs> I guess the reality is that, like, pictures are one thing, but reality is real. Because that's the only place yeah. to get a decent hamburger or a full meal. Well, and on top of that, I mean, have you ever had a situation where you knew somebody knew something and you knew they were trying to hide it? It's like being in a funeral and somebody comes up and there's that awkward moment where they know you're sad, you are sad, and you know they know you're sad. Now they know that we know that they know that we know. And anything that comes out of their mouth now, unless it is absolutely the most sincere and genuine words, just comes off as fake. And and just brings out the fact that you're feeling sad even worse. It's like that uh, the funeral scene in the IT crowd where um, Roy is asking, like, what do I say? And 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 Jen says, just say, say you're I'm sorry for your loss and move on. And then he goes to the widow. I'm sorry for your loss. Move on. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, God. No, I meant (laughs) <laughs> Maybe I hadn't seen that episode. That's the one where his boss dies, right? His boss dies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I totally missed that part. Oh, it's so great. I'm going to put insert a clip right here. Pretend you watched it. <laughs> okay, there's Denham's wife. I never know what to say to people at funerals. No, neither do I. I'm terrible. I'll just say, I'm sorry for your loss, then move on. You'll be in our prayers. Thank you. Sorry for your loss. Thank you. Move on. <laughs> oh, now just laugh. Okay, yeah. Totally missed that. Oh, God. Woo! 
Was that sincere enough? Did you like that? <laughs> oh, that's going to be the clip oh, at the end. Good times. Oh, fantastic. <clears throat> so, but he doesn't know how, he, he would not know how she is going to respond. And she is really pushing off this moment where he's going to see that and her fear of, oh God, that's so much bigger that's, and brighter than I thought it was going to be. Holy shit, Rudolph. I, I, I mean, uh, Artemis. <laughs> It's not her nose. I know, but it's the same. It's the Rudolph effect, if you will, right? Now, you got some uh, schmutz on your face. <laughs> uh, well, I, okay, but anyhow, continue. continue. We've circled around that drain. He can see her, just like the photo that he'd seen. He goes into then the very detailed description about what she looks like. The Rubenesque body, pale freckled skin, hazel eyes, raven hair. You know, round face, just like her avatar, and that same reddish birthmark. But she's not hiding the birthmark anywhere like she did in that photo. She's just just letting it all, you know, hang out in the breeze. And he calls her beautiful. And that's nice. And the fact that she, in that moment, allows him to see her. That is that is in that moment where she's taken off her armor. Pretty much. You know, she's kept it up, she's kept it up, she's kept it up, and then... She's taken off her armor. She's allowed him to see her vulnerable point. The thing that, that makes her confidence weak, despite the enormous amount of confidence she has in the Oasis. And I think everybody goes through this at some point. Yeah. So she, of course, is like, really? And then she looks at him. And then she says, well, what do you know? You look just like I thought you would, too. But ugly. And the armor comes back on. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so here's the Isn't thing, it? though. Let's let's just throw this thing out here. Ten or so days before this point, he was in his apartment in Columbus, right? You following me? Mm -hmm. So what was he doing there in his shower that was spraying on the like the stuff to get rid of all of his hair, right? So he could wear his suits and like you know roam the oasis and in his you know with his crazy uh, with his Uber Betty. Yeah, exactly. But so 10 or 11 days before that, he had all of his hair removed. Uh-huh. I'm talking eyebrows, everything. So I would oh. imagine that he does look pretty fucking butt ugly right now. You know, I, you can grow some hair back in a, in, in a week or two. Dude, I, my facial hair comes in. This just might be a little TMI, excuse me, but my facial hair comes in like in two days. Like it's it's scruffy as fuck. So yeah, but do eyebrows grow back that quickly? I I don't know. I've not ventured to shave mine off. So and I'm not going to. We could ask not, Bob Geldof. I don't know who that is. Huh. He's the actor who played Pink in the movie Pink Floyd: The Wall. Oh, it's been a while since I've seen that. Shaves his eyebrows off. Bless. So. I, so, yes. So, he, okay. So, you're saying is that she looks at him and she's like, nope, you're butt ugly. So, it's like half-heartedly honest. Is that what I'm getting? What I'm saying is that, like, he's probably not looking all that normal. Is this the first time she has seen him in real life? She's not seen a picture of him. Yeah. So, this is, she's, so but there's a twofold reaction here. Not only is, does, does she, is she allowing him to see her, but this is kind of her first time viewing him. So this is kind of an again an exchange of vulnerabilities here. So she is 
what I have to imagine as she is scanning him slowly from his feet up to his face is just it's sort of taking in and 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 again holding out or or pushing off that moment where she has to interact with his face. She's uh she's scanning him like a T one thousand. Sure. Uh, but I mean, you think about that, though, because she probably has her own sort of expectations. You know, her fears about how other people would view her have to may also may also be her f- fears about how she may end up viewing him. That after having interacted with him, having probably fell as deeply with him, but having more, let's say, discipline that she's going to see him and he ends up being totally nothing like she would ever be interested in. And then that in itself would be just a gargantuous disappointment as well. But the fact that she looks up and and she makes eye contact and is willing to sort of joke with him uh, to break the tension uh, is, is kind of cool. You know, that's, that's at least a good moment where where she's like, ah, thank goodness. It's just like Parzival. Looks, looks kind, of a, kind of a familiar face, if you will. Not too yeah. different. So now she's kind of fallen back into the banter of the friend that she recognizes. And I I really dig that. I, You know, these, these are like little subtle things we're teasing apart. But these are kind of the little things that I felt made this chapter endearing and not just cheesy and, oh, happily ever after the end, you know, Disney. Right? Yeah. I hate that shit. So, okay. Moving on, though. So anyway, she is, she calls she is him butt down. ugly. They laugh. The tension is dissipated, and then they stare lovingly into each other's eyes. And she pats she pats the bench beside her. I, I love that she's just like, "Come on over here, have a seat." Yeah, he doesn't just take a seat. He's not being he's not presuming anything about their relationship. She is, you know, point for point, sort of opening the door, and. He's not taking anything from her. She's willingly giving it. You know, it, 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 that's a horrible way to put it, I suppose. But <laughs> I, I, the gist here is he's not presuming on how she might feel about their current status in their relationship. So she is, she is, you know, step for step, like patting the seat, is saying, you can sit next to me. That's, I want you to. But that's it for now. Yeah, we going slow. Just, you know, pat the seat. Have a seat. He's, he's not presuming that he's that that they're on on terms that he can just simply plop down next to her and say sup. Well, not not that he has any other model for proper behavior other than the TV shows and movies he's been watching for the last five six years. There you go. So he doesn't know what's appropriate. So yeah, might as well wait for permission to do whatever he's told. That is a great point. Like if you were to look at the eighties. And think to yourself, this, from the movies and the music and the television shows that we engulfed ourselves in for hours and hours, all of these things are models. They're models of behavior. They're models of responses. They're models of how we should emulate emotion and, and communicate emotion in order to get the responses we want from people. And if we look at how people act coming out of a certain period of time, the 80s is kind of unique because the 80s was really the advent of a heavy, heavy cinema and television, which means our models likely weren't necessarily people in our lives, other than our parents, maybe. 
and some of our friends, but we spent a lot of time now watching television. So our model shifted from being our friends and our family to these sort of programmed actors that that's their job is to emulate emotions and tell stories. And as a result, be models for behavior. And in doing so, I mean, it's just like you said, how is he going to know any better? He hardly knows anyone and he doesn't know how to behave except for what he viewed in the 80s movies, television shows and music. So that's a great question. Like as we move forward beyond this book and we start looking at and digging into the the media that we may have missed during that period of time. Uh, I, I'm curious as to kind of the behaviors that sort of pop out and what's considered to be acceptable. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you like flat out that when I watch movies from the eighties, you know, now it's appalling. It's wild as to what was considered acceptable. Oh my God. And, and uh, it's, it's no wonder that uh, we have a whole generation of people that are just absolutely blind and, and totally sideswept, like totally hit out of left field, that the behaviors that they were raised on are all of a sudden not acceptable anymore. And uh, I, I don't think I realized that more than when I watched Blade Runner for the first time. Oh. And I was like, holy, f how is this, how is that behavior even okay? How did that even work? How is that considered, you know, you, you know the scene I'm talking about because oh, yeah. I went on about it for freaking 45 minutes. But it's like, Jesus, this scene's kind of rapey. Yeah. And if, and if you can't remember a scene in Blade Runner that was kind of rapey, then that's a perfect example of how the movie came out and what was done within the movie was considered acceptable versus nowadays, and it is definitely not. It's very, it's unusual. So... Circling back around, she pets the seat next to her, and he sits down. Hey, good boy. Who's a good boy, Barzival? Who's a good boy? No. <sighs> no. <laughs> <sighs> Wait, wow. Way to demasculate that. Is it emasculate? Emasculate? Emasculate. There we go. Anyhow, moving on. He sits down. <laughs> you may sit by me in the place I have petted. <laughs> Please do so. Now, quickly. He sits down. And she asks him, so, oh, what are we going to do now? Don't say it. And what do you think he's going to say? We're going to do what you want to do. Spend all this money to make the world a better place. Feed the planet. All that good stuff. But she's like, but don't you want to build a huge interstellar spaceship and load it full of video games, junk food, and comfy couches? And get the hell out of here? Which sounds like a lot of fun. Does it? Does it? I mean, let's stop for a moment. Let's tangent on this for a second. Because there is no good solution there. There's nothing of either of their aspirations. Uh, as as either entertaining or or well intentioned as it is, because the minute you feed everyone, here's the problem: they go hungry when you run out of money. You've not helped anyone. You know, it, you could feed people; that's fine. It would far it would be far better to spend your money to 
you know, retrain people and provide tools to sustain themselves, right? That's that's different. You feed the world, people continue to eat. And if you're just feeding the world, your money will go away very fast. The flip of that is no matter how bad the planet Earth gets, this is still and always will be the most habitable planet in our solar system. We are designed for this planet. We we are the apex predator because we are able to to adapt so well using tools using shelter using our environment to to manipulate that environment um we we are specifically evolved for the earth it's it's a bit like sitting down into a sofa and the sofa you you're so used to it over time that it has the butt indention that is perfect to your ass and you take it for granted but it is your ass indention that is in that chair that makes it so comfortable. Indention? Indention. Your butt has in, made an indention into the couch or into the, the sofa. You know, that is why I'm it is challenge your, that word. Your, oh, please do. An indention. Archaic word for indentation. I don't think it's that archaic. No, that's what uh, Google said, is that it's an archaic version of indentation. So I guess you're right. But but I mean, Earth is, <laughs> Earth Earth is our indention, indentation. It is it is our comfy couch. And when we leave and we try to sit fucking anywhere else, it's it's just not quite as comfortable. Not at all. You know, you go to space and your body's like, well, fuck that. You don't need bones and your muscles. You don't need that. I mean, it gets you know gravity. You, you know, eyesight. <laughs> gravity. You know, uh, we're just going to make your whole body puffy because, you know, no gravity. You get the gist here is that I don't care how much junk food you bring with you. You're never or whatever planet you think you're going to go to. It is never going to be as good as Earth, no matter how bad Earth gets. This is the part that kind of bugs me about this whole we need to go to Mars. We need to take a shitload of money that we could you know, use to make the world better. Uh, and then we need to spend an enormous amount of, of resources building out. I mean, really digging in the earth to build out, you know, the electronics, the batteries, the fuel, you know, all of this, this very specialized and resource of intensive hardware to throw that shit <laughs> into space and then toss it onto another planet that is in no way a place that we are evolved to even live in for any extended period of time without having... A literally an entirely artificial environment surrounding us at all times, and this idea of of going to I love the idea of exploring like the other worlds in our in our you know great fantastic. We've we have got a fucking death fetish with exploration and going to the planets, sending people to other planets. We should colonize these. We are not the fucking moon is filled with razor sharp beads of glass. That the minute you come in and you breathe in any of that regular, that tears up your fucking lungs. I mean, it's not like instant death, but he will fuck with you. There's nothing friendly about the moon. There's, no, there's not even a sign that says welcome. No, not at all. So uh, there's, there's of these two scenarios, as, as aspirational uh, or at least entertaining as they might be, they're not great solutions. But at the very least... You know, they've they've kind of traded up what they want to do. She has convinced him that 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 he should change his intentions. Well, 
what it comes down to is that it kind of shows their immaturity because they're very childish dreams. Sure. You know, I want to just build a spaceship and get out of here. I want to save the world. It's like one person does not have the capacity to save the world. Sorry to break it to you. Now that said, I'm going to, I'm going to 180 on you here and say that it is that kind of immaturity coupled with passion that does bring change. Because if you get a person who has those simplistic or naive aspirations, they go, you know, just, they just go all into it. They are, they are hundred percent in. And at that point, it is, it is through that hundred percent in dedication that they realize it is a much more complicated situation. But so long as they hold on to those aspirations, they will push through to something better. And it may not be the epitome of their aspirations, but it'll be something better than than uh, they would if they had just been given up hope. Like you and I are in a position in our lives, I think, where we can look at that and go, ha, 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 naive children, it's so much more complex than you could possibly imagine. And I wouldn't even try. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have hope. I wouldn't have the aspirations because I know how difficult and potentially insurmountable it would be. I, I, we just don't have time. We're too busy podcasting. We can't save the yeah, world. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. We can't build a spaceship. Uh, yeah, you know, or lives, or kids, family, etc. Work, but uh, you need you need those uh, you need immature. You need those dreams, and uh, you know, an ounce of passion. Because as soon as they hit that that first wall, they're going to realize this is harder than I expected it to be. But the hope is that if that passion is enough and they hang on to those aspirations, that no matter how difficult it is, they will push out something better. So, yeah, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so I see this next part of the dialogue as being just incredibly awkward. I thought it was sweet. Yeah, just awkward. Oh yes, this dialogue. Oh, 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 God! This is this is the part where it's I'm biting my fingers, going, "Dude, you're gonna scare her off." Oh, geez, it, it's almost as bad as when they're text messaging each other. Yeah, where he just coming, he's coming on so damn strong. It's like, come on! And then he's like, "I'm not even laying it on thick yet." It's like you're laying it on so thick. It's like molasses. I told you this was going to get sticky. Oh, it got sticky. Right. Sappy. So, yeah, this is rough. So this is this is when he says, you know, first off, we can take things as slow as you like, which is kind of a weird way to open things up, which is kind of like, damn right, we will. Uh, but, I mean, she doesn't say that, but she does laugh and, and you know, she wipes some hairs away from her from her tears. But, uh, and that's when he pulls off the, you know, did I mention I'm extremely rich? So it's like, he's pulling out, like, now they're kind of on the buddy-buddy level, and he's trying to lighten her mood, so he's kind of joking with her. She's obviously kind of, you know, emotionally affected, and I get that. I like the fact that, uh, you know, Artemis apologizes for breaking things off, but he's like, no, no, I understand, you know, you did the right thing. And the irony here is, like, just like you said... Two weeks earlier, he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to risk my life. You know, it's either this or I'm going to throw myself off the top of a building. And now he's kind of like, no, it's cool. It's cool. Everything's all right. Now it is. Yeah. <laughs> now that he's not like face up on the pavement after a long drop. 
That's cool, man. I totally thought that, that you uh, you hated me and I lost everything in my life and I was going to kill myself. But no, no, no. It's cool. It turned out all right. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny how he's like, oh, don't worry about it. It's cool. You did the right thing. But in reality, he's like, you know, rocking himself to sleep at night while crying in a corner next to his haptic chair because, you know, he's lost everything. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like there's a lot of character growth in a very short period of time that yeah. it just doesn't seem logical. But I think know. probably the most character growth we're seeing here is how Artemis was written. Because she Cause she's pushing through to vulnerability. And he's really just falling back to hitting on her, frankly. Now, now that he's because now the contest is over, it wasn't that long ago. Where, she, well, it, I mean, in the book, it was a little while ago. It was like six or seven months before the, this point, where she says, mm-hmm. "We need to spend some time apart. You know, we should we're, we should stop talking." And he's like, "Till when?" And she's like, "When the contest is over." And he's like, "That could take years." So be it. Yeah. And now the contest is over. So, like... Yeah. Any hindrance to them actually pursuing what would what was already started at that point is gone now. Yeah. And now she can be honest. And again, this is... If there was any character growth in this in this book, I think the majority of it is on Artemis. That she, she shows the most character growth. Because at this point, this is when she's vulnerable to an extent. And she admits, you know... Uh, you know, I missed you. You're my best friend. It, it's basically how she feels. And she's not necessarily bearing her heart per se, but she's apparently what I took from this was that she's relieved that the game is over. And she's relieved that that her obsession with finding the egg has kind of come full circle and she can just kind of let go of that and now focus on potentially what she's wanted to focus on, but has restrained herself from doing I think I'm going to say that Parzival probably had more growth. I think she was already significantly more mature than him. Mm-hmm. And while she does make the bold move of finally like letting her guard down with regards to her birthmark at the end, but she's still basically the same person she was at the time that they had split things off and she quote unquote broke up with him. Whereas from the start of the book, when Parzival was really just a stupid, immature kid, he's started to learn a little bit about how to deal with other humans and respect their boundaries, especially when he doesn't know what their boundaries are. If for no other reason than most of the other people we've interacted with in the, in the book haven't needed the amount of personal growth. Sure. I mean, the focus is on these, really these two characters from his perspective. So I think that if there's any point of personal growth with Parzival, it's really in like the next following minutes of this chapter where he sits down and they hold hands and he reaches out to hold her hand. So he kind of, he makes the move. She's, she's opened herself up. She says, I've, I've really missed you. You know, you're my best friend, your absolute favorite person in the world. And he reaches over and holds her hand, and she gives him a really simple kiss on the cheek. And it's this little subtle thing, right? Well, and, hold on and, Do we know that it's just a kiss on the cheek? Yeah. Are you sure? Oh, maybe not. I, that's what I imagined. She leaned over and kissed me. I mean, that's, I, I guess maybe it could have been on the lips. I totally thought it was like on the cheek sort of thing. 
I guess that's something we'll have to debate on the socials. Possibly. So, on the socials, when you read this part and, you, and she leaned over and kissed him, were you thinking lips? Were you thinking, like, on the cheek? To me, I thought cheek. I thought all of this was very subtle, very simple. That's where my mind went. She, re- she, she leaned over and kissed me. I would say I agree with you. I think that that would have been the next place for them to go, given how slow they're purposefully moving through this. Mm-hmm. But it's unclear. After she leaned over and kissed him, he says it felt like all those songs and poems had promised it would. It felt wonderful, like being struck by lightning. So the way mm-hmm. Will Wheaton reads this part, when he says it felt wonderful, I'll insert it right now. Sometime later, she leaned over and kissed me. It felt just like all those songs and poems had promised it would. It felt wonderful. It just sounds like, like, it felt wonderful. Like, calm down there, Mr. Wheaton. Well, I mean, it felt wonderful. Like being struck by lightning, you know, like you do. I mean, it's not going to be a casual thing. I think that emphasis to me was, you know, sort of starstruck, awe-inspiring, emotionally provoking moment yeah i i love those moments in life at least he didn't point out like i realized afterwards that this was in fact the first time i'd ever kissed a girl oh god yeah thank goodness he didn't write that because he pointed out like this was the first time we actually saw each other in real life this was the first time we actually were in the same building well you know he could have followed it up with this was nothing like the the uber betty (laughs) yeah at least the uber betty had like some manipulation to it had some action. No. Bless. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, like being struck by lightning. I was like, in a, in a, in a handful of words, he, he kind of captures that, that feeling of, you know, that first kiss when you're in middle school or high school or whenever it hits you, where it's sort of built up and, and it just kind of willingly collides. Uh, and I just, you know, I dig that. I, I just kind of like that. This is just another example of, um, this, this isn't masterful writing. This isn't, uh, poetry. This isn't, you know, Shakespeare. This is just simply conveying uh, a situation that, you know, if you've, if you've run into this, this should ring a bell with. Of all the references that could be made in this book that you might relate to, I find this one sentence to be, the most uh, striking from an emotional perspective, because everything else is, is sort of, you know, third person viewing uh, in this situation. I I know that feeling I've been in that situation and, uh, you know, it's kind of fucking part of living. Kind of. Yeah. Just a little bit. So you're saying that this line here was one that was particularly powerful. Yeah. And- I like the simplicity of, of this entire end part. That didn't linger on too horribly. So can we pull the rug out from under you with the last line? Because the last line, ah. Nope, love the last line. I love the last line of this book. It's a good last line, but it just hurts me because I love the, well, let's read the line first. Okay. It occurred to me then that for the first time in as long as I could remember, I had absolutely no desire to log back into the Oasis. Ugh. It's like, I, I, I'm i sitting here like, I want to go back into the Oasis and enjoy that world. And he's saying, I don't want to go back. Uh, I got this girl right here. She's paying attention to me. It's like, no, go back to the Oasis. Um, you know, for, I, I'm, 
I'm fucking surrounded by computers all day, and uh, be it entertainment or work, uh, there are moments when I unplug, and or I'm I'm doing something with the kids, or I'm I'm out on a date with my wife, and it's those moments that I'm like I would rather I there's nowhere else I would rather be in this moment. I don't I'm not longing in the back of my head to come back to my computers. You know, and these are the these oh, are those. I, I mean, this is the love hate relationship I have with my technology. So I, I'm not being critical of Parzla wanting to you know live in the real world. I'm commenting on the fact that all I want to do is read more about the world of the Oasis. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see. You're just kind of like go back in, go back in. I want to hear more about it. Yeah, because I, I I just so enjoyed the world building at the beginning of the book mm-hmm. and all and his adventures in the oasis, and then like he finally steps out of the oasis for the last time in the book, and it's just like no more more lines of coke. <laughs> yeah, when I first read this, it just was kind of like oh that's a nice line, but now now that we you know we have a drink. And then we're dissecting the shit out of this chapter. I realize now that his pursuit for his entire life, or so as long as he's known the Oasis uh, and and Halliday passing on, that has been to find the egg. And I'm kind of I'm going to fall back to this this thing, which is he found his egg, and it wasn't in the Oasis. This this was this was the egg, and it, again, she is not something to be had, and I don't want to communicate it in that way. But that that egg is his experience, real, true, raw emotion in the real world that is above and beyond what you could experience in the Oasis. And then all of a sudden, the Oasis is the world you are in. It is in your reality. That, that VR becomes secondary. That it isn't, though it's far less real. Like you don't know how real the real world is until it has provoked enormous raw emotion from you and then you know it's like having cold water dumped on you that you're like this is way more than i could experience in vr and and this is where my emotional easter egg lies it isn't in searching for it in the oasis it's in finding it in the world with this person who provokes these emotions from me or pulls them from me and I really kind of love how sort of simple that's tied up, like like a just a, a fucking clock that's packed into a beautiful little box that's tied with a pretty simple bow. Conveniently located at the end of the book. Conveniently, well, that's like this whole fucking book is, is exactly that. A lot of cool, complex machinery and gearing and crammed into a, a pretty box that's easy to consume and hold and unwrap. Well done. Yeah. Oh my God, that was the last line of the book. We're done. Pretty much. For now. For now. What am I going to do? Well, you know, he has written other books. <laughs> and I, think, I think we should talk about, I think we should talk about what's next because it's the end of the book. And frankly, for Get to the Good Part, this is the first and only book that Get to the Good Part has done, right? Get to the Good Part as a podcast. Wasn't it meant to focus necessarily on this book? I, I think initially it was, but I think the idea always was that we would finish the book, we would move on to another book, right? Yeah, it just that when you when we format it chapter by chapter, and there's 
time between that. It takes a little while. Right. Right. I, I, I think there was also a pie in the sky idea that there'd be an episode a week. Yeah, that was a good pie in the sky. But uh, I think there, there are a number of directions we could go. And now I'm speaking to the audience. That there are a number of directions we could go. And one is we could, we could review Armada. I know there's a lot of people asking us to talk about Armada, and maybe at some point we will. Mm. But that is, I think, just given the amount of intensity we have put into this one particular Ernest Klein book, we're going to take a few steps back, take a little bit of a breather, and try a few other things first and see where it goes. What I would really love to see us do, what I think, what I think could be fun, is what, we've, is what we've done with our Patreon group, which is whenever we run into something that we've not experienced, either one of us or both of us, we review it or that we experience it, and then we come back and we review it. We dissect it. We basically gunter the fuck out of it. Uh, and that's, then that's kind of, uh, that, that kind of turns into the Gunter 101, doesn't it? Because I think between the two of us, there's a lot of pop culture that we missed in the 80s be it movies or music or video oh, games, yeah. a number of things that we've both experienced going through this book because we're like, what the, f- what the fuck is Gundam? And then you go and you look that shit up and you're like, oh, and you figure out there's a backstory, there's television shows, there's, there's character arcs that we didn't even know. Of. We're missing out on a, on a, a whole mess of, of palette. It's like it's as if we discovered the color red. We're like, holy shit, you know, look at these things. So I think, I think I, what would be fun is to take all of the references, make a list, and figure out what references you and I, or both of us, have not experienced. And then, you know, we start a recording, and uh, it's like, uh, here are our thoughts going into it, and then we come out of it with having seen something of it and experienced it, and then reflect on it. Sort of a, a before and after, kind of like what we did with, with Rush, where we went through 21... 2112. Right, 2112. <laughs> we went through 2112, and for me, it was my first time. Oh. So we, we didn't listen to the entire song. Did you wear but, protection? But we went into it. Uh, we, you and I went through that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. That, that, that I think, was one of my memory. favorite Patreon episodes that we've done. I, I loved that, because it, we, we, we went into the music, and then we came out of it uh, without listening to all of it. So... It, but, you know, we fade in, fade out. Uh, and then we discussed it. And then we moved into it piece by piece. So we were ready to dive into the next the next uh, movement, if you will, of 2112. And, then, and I felt like we really sounded like we knew what we were talking about. Well, we had just, we were, we were listening to it live in the moment, right? Yeah. So uh, I think we should do that with, with, we should go back, get the list, figure out, identify what we are not familiar with, and then make it to the good part a, a sort of Gunter 101 for these references. One might say an Anorax Almanac. Sure. That, that might be the next movement. To get to the good part, Anorax Almanac, the filler between player one and player two. Get to the good part. Anorax Almanac edition. Waiting out the next book. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I think that could be fun. I think that for me that would be entertaining, and if and and I hope you would find that entertaining, particularly since you said that you enjoyed that. We'll figure something out. We'll but... figure something out. But I kind of I'm kind of digging on that direction. Like that interests me, whereas Armada does not. <laughs> not not right now. I mean, good okay book. Not 
great, not, I'm not enthused about talking about it on a chapter-by-chapter chapter basis. I hear you. I would definitely say that the chapter-by-chapter chapter format is on hold until Ready Player Two comes out. Absolutely. Yeah. Because what happens if we get going, and then suddenly that book comes out, and it's like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah, then we're going to drop the other fucking book. So that would, that would suck. Yeah, I agree. We're not waiting two years to get through Armada <laughs> to get to Ready Player Two and miss the whole fucking boat. So how do we want to wrap this baby up? There's certainly not another chapter, but there will be another episode. We could read the book flap. Really? No. Is there a book flap? I... No, I think we should just, let's just wrap it up. Do we want to acknowledge anybody? Ernest, you wrote a good book. Thank you. Thank you, Ernie. And thanks for putting up with us and listening to our ridiculous opinions. We hope you enjoyed. We certainly enjoyed it. We hope you loved us loving this book, even if we like critiqued the fuck out of it. It was all in awesome admiration and love. Absolutely. So I think uh, huge, huge props to what it takes to to get a good story out there. And I will certainly throw out my own personal props to Ernest Klein for writing a book about video games and having it have such an impact on somebody who is admittedly not a video gamer to the effect that this book had on me and the amount of times that I've read it is just insane. Yeah. It's crazy. It's obsessive. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading this book at least two or three times a year before I started on the podcast. And then once that happened and I started doing show prep for episodes, I probably read the book an equivalent amount of times to say, having read the book at least 10, 12 times. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the shelf behind me, I have a variety of autographed versions of this book. And, yeah. and, and, and we won't even get into the amount of commerce due to, Having read this book, the paraphernalia. Uh, yeah, like like we have, I have spent thousands of dollars on this show uh, for this book, not just in toys, but in hardware to make the show better. Yeah, you know, and, and software. Yeah, hardware, software. Yeah, and we're not only going to put a value on our time, even though our time is certainly valuable. We've taken time away from our families. Mm -hmm. We have perhaps ignored friends to sit down and record. Mm -hmm. We have created new friendships as part of this. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's been... That's the best part, re really. That really has been, a you know, really great to meet all these people and to meet some of them in person and still maintain those friendships over the course of the last few years of doing this podcast. It's been... It's been fantastic. It's been freaking awesome. Yeah, no, I know. I, I totally agree. And on top of that, I'd say that if Ernest Klein is like Halliday in the book, and the purpose of the book was to draw the players in to getting to know Halliday and to understanding his obsessions and his loves, that's exactly what this book did for us in regards to Ernie's obsessions and loves. Ernest's, Ernest's obsessions and loves. Uh, I would never have entertained the idea of listening to 2112 really wouldn't have 
Uh, just as an example, it's just it's not the kind of music that that I'm really into. You know, D- during the you know late '80s, early '90s, there was Headbangers Ball and Yo MTV Raps, and I wasn't a Yo MTV Raps kind of guy. And uh, this drug me into uh, the artistry of Rush. That uh, granted, I'm I'm not like it's, I'm not a convert. Like I don't have like all Rush albums, and that's all I'm listening to twenty four seven. But I have a much deeper appreciation for the effort that they put into it, and ultimately the obsession that Ernest has with with that band. So it's it's cool how the book draws you closer. Admit it, you're rocking out to Rush every day. No, uh, no, no. But that's no? that is not because Rush is not good. It's probably because I have poor taste. I can say that I can say that in earnest now. I can certainly admit that every so often I will start playing twenty one twelve because it's just fucking awesome. And part of that appreciation came from having done that episode that we did. Yes. Yeah. I, I've not listened to it more than a few times, but I have I, I I at least listened to it a few times now out of just from that episode that we did. So I'm kinda stoked about that. And I'm stoked about exploring more media that I feel like I've missed and delving in deeper on that. Yeah, that's going to be fun. So let's wrap it up, shall we? I guess we can. I'm We've reached the end of the book. On. I know, I know. We've reached the end of the book, but not the end of the podcast. So with that in mind, till next time, this is Chris. And this is Aaron. We'll catch you for the next episode of Get to the Good Part. See ya. I think a big, I think one like one of the biggest attractors for this show initially was the fact that one of the original guys, John, hadn't read the book, and we were kind of forcing him on a week by week basis to read a chapter. And there's that that if you've read the book, it's great because you're now experiencing it again with somebody who hasn't read it. And there's that. I don't know that that like I won't see a movie twice by myself, but I will see it twice with someone else because bringing them there kind of allows me to experience it through their eyes. And that's a whole other meta level of entertainment really? that I enjoy. I, I just plowed through the the first three Indiana Jones movies all by myself because, mm. well, why not? I have no problem watching movies by myself. No, I don't mean it so much that, but I mean like when a new movie comes out, do you go and you watch it more than once? Uh, I have not gone to a theater to watch a new movie more than once since Jurassic Park. All right, but I mean, you to be fair, I was like twelve when that oh, shit came out. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah this is true. So I, that's one of the appeals, I think. That I really that attracted me to to coming onto the show at least was that there was someone else there was someone who w- that was experiencing it for the first time and that made me excited to talk about it and it provided a gutter uh, for me to avoid uh, which was whatever what the next chapter was so to kind of keep me from talking too much ahead whereas that temptation is too great for somebody who's also already read the entire book. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Anyhow. It's, it is food for thought. It is. I'm going to pause here and say that the way we'll... Yeah. The way will see that ten times this. The way will Wheaton. The way will wait. Wait. Yeah. The way will Wheaton. The way the fuck. The way will. The way will Wheaton. The way will Wheaton. The way will. Two weeks. So let's just put push Og aside. Although I will say that Og saying that he owes Parzival the thanks. Rather than Parzival owing Hog the thanks. He was watching him. He was watching him. He's rubbing his nipple, drinking like a martini in one hand. He's watching, you know, in his video, the kids writhing and fighting. Oh, you have to delicious. go there. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Parzival. That's Aww. horrible. That's horrible. Let's just skip right over that. Let's cut that part out. Out. <laughs> no, we, we love you, Og. We love you, Og. You are great. And there is some mutual unlocking that has to happen between two people. What you're saying is that both people have to turn their key to launch the missile? Yeah. Oh, God. You know what? <laughs> it was like, yes, you've got it. Oh, God, no. Oh, God. No. Unless it's Superman 5 and you knock everyone out and then you tie the one dude's hand with the string and you're on the other side and then you pull it, but I'm pretty sure that's illegal. But there are a number of directions we could go. And one is we could, we could review Artemis. And, and I want to tell you why I think that's not a great idea. Although we Artem- Artemis? So, God, let's try to skip. Yeah, sorry. That's the Andy Weir book, Artemis. Uh, I meant... Um, help me out here. Armada. Thank you, Armada. This is Chris, and this is Aaron, and we will catch you. No, I should be. I should sound. I should sound a little less. You know, like a moody, a little less. I'm excited. I'm excited. Like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do more. Right? Yeah. No, it's gonna be fun. I. It's just sad to see this, this book, you know, be in the rearview mirror instead of uh, straight ahead. I'm ready for the next chapter in, our, in, in the podcast. See what you did there. Yeah, yeah. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. Go.